Hello and welcome to the SAMOP Specialty Spotlight Podcast. This podcast was created to help inform military medical students about experiences and opportunities in military medicine. We aim to interview physicians either currently in or retired from the military from all branches of service in various specialties. Today, we are fortunate to have Dr. Napier with us. Dr. Napier is a United States Air Force major and the current Chief of Gynecological Surgery and Obstetrics at the Yokota Air Base in Japan. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Napier. Thank you, Larissa. I'm really happy to be here. Yeah, I'm very excited to talk to you. Would you start off by giving myself and the listeners a little bit, a little history about yourself? Sure. Uh, as Larissa stated, I am Major Napier. I'm from Colorado Springs originally, where I under- attended undergraduate. Um, I was at the University of Colorado at the smaller affiliate in Colorado Springs, um, and also where I met my eventual husband. We both attended the Uniformed Services University uh, that's in Bethesda, Maryland for our medical education. Then we went to residency and I was in the combined Wright State University Affiliated Hospitals Integrated Obstetrics and Gynecology Program. (laughs) And now I'm currently serving as the Chief of Gynecologic Surgery and Obstetrics at Yokota Air Base in Tokyo, Japan. So as I've alluded to, I am mill to mill and currently happily married to my husband who is serving as an Air Force pediatrician. And we currently have four children, um, ages eight, six, four, and two. <laughs> so that's, that's me. Easy to remember the ages. <laughs> yeah, I know, right? <laughs> oh, that's great. Thank you. So your husband and family is with you in Tokyo? Yep, we're all here together. My husband and I are ser- serving a um, joint spouse assignment. Um, pretty easy in the Air Force, um, especially as our specialties tend to align. So anywhere there's obstetrics, there's going to be pediatrics. How long have you been there? So we are coming up on two years next month. We'll be here for about six more months. And then um, we're actually back to our roots. We're going back to Dayton, Ohio at Wright Pat. Excellent. That's very exciting. Yeah, we're Um, excited. Why did you choose to become a physician? My mom had told me that the first job I ever told her I wanted to do was deliver babies. Of course, I really didn't know what that entailed, but um, I was a very eager learner when I was younger and pretty good at it. Um, In college, I was really involved in a lot of um, kind of women's ministry. I was volunteering at a pregnancy center and with some women's programs at my local church. Um, I'd been on a missions trip with a prior military OBGYN. Um, who I then kind of shadowed throughout college. And um, so I can say that I kind of went into medicine anticipating that I would go into women's health. I did give the other specialties a really fair look. Uh, Honestly, I did try to convince myself throughout medical school to maybe go into anything other than OB. I had multiple physicians who just said, you know, you might, if you love something else, you might want to consider something else because life doesn't really get better as an attending. It's just a very busy specialty, but honestly, everything I saw in medicine seemed to be framed by my love for women and women's health. 
So like when I was on my general surgery um, rotation, my attending like told me not to throw away my surgical hands. And I thought, well, I do love operating, but boy, I would much rather wake up for a mom and baby than an appendix in the middle of the night. (laughs) And then when my family medicine attending said that I should consider like going into family medicine, I was kind of like, yeah, I could do family medicine and then get my family medicine OB certification. So, um, so I think you just, uh, in some ways, a lot of people end up just discovering that they were really made for OB and OB is just an irrevocable calling. I would say that OB is definitely kind of a specialty for people who want it all. Um, so people who love kind of medicine and surgery. Um, and of course you have to be pretty passionate about women. Um, it's also kind of a little bit more of the most like artsy of the specialties. OB obviously is a surgical subspecialty, but it's very focused. Um, you become, you know, a pretty specialized surgeon right out the gate and you get to perform a lot of, uh, obviously the most common procedures in the U S right now. Um, and, and then also just like a lot of really helpful surgeries for women. Um, you get to do a little bit of sleuthing. So you get to do um, some primary care. You get to do some of the workups, some of the preventative health um, that's kind of entailed in your well woman's visits. Um, and sometimes you're the only contact that women will have with medicine um, because of their pregnancies. Uh, in, and then, um, you know, I've, I've gotten some of the opportunity to kind of share with some people their initial diagnosis of um you know, to say diabetes or sometimes cancer. Um, but unlike, you know, family medicine, you are going to have a much narrower, much more specialized approach. Um, in pregnancy, you get to stretch kind of your like medicine wings. So you get a little bit more continuity, um, throughout kind of the nine months of a woman's pregnancy. Um, and you get to manage some complex, but not necessarily like too complex medical issues throughout your, their pregnancies especially if you're a generalist, you get to do a little bit of emergency medicine, you, you know, patient will hit the door and you can literally be in the OR with them within 20 minutes, kind of saving somebody's life from either an ectomic pregnancy or maybe like preeclampsia or something like that. You get to dabble in a little bit of radiology with, you know, your ultrasound skills, obviously you kind of get exposure to all the bodily fluids. So you have to have a strong stomach. Um, so you're not necessarily kind of always in a hole with radiology, but, and then my colleagues and I, we kind of always joke about how we practice a little bit of gynecology. So there's some component of that. It's obviously a very intimate specialty. You get to share some of those most memorable and joyous moments with women as your patients but you also get to walk with them through some of the most vulnerable and some of their most intense moments. And you'll also be there during some of the most difficult and some of the most scariest moments of their life for better, for worse. And you do, you do have to know that sometimes these will become some of the most difficult and most scariest moments of your life as well as a physician. And then kind of just one last thing to kind of plug for OB is, you know, you're obviously going to always be a little bit upfront and center in terms of having a specialty that might be one of the more politically charged and ethically challenging aspects in medicine. Um, So a lot of 
aspects of your job are going to give you the opportunity to grow um, kind of in some of the principles of medical ethics and its interpretations. And it also gives you a big space for advocacy that a lot of physicians may not have. I think people probably kind of know a lot of the hot topics in our specialty, things like abortion, transgender medicine, um, kind of some of the up and coming racial disparities discussions. And then um, of course, you know, another hot topic with COVID has been kind of what to do with the new medical therapies or medications or vaccines for the pregnant um, individual and her baby. So that's kind of why I went into OB and I definitely some of the really cool aspects of my job Um, In terms of why I joined the military, uh, I am an Air Force brat by my raisin, and I'm a third-generation military officer, uh, so it seemed pretty natural, um, especially because many of my mentors, a lot of the interactions I had were with people that were in the military when I was younger. Um, Of course, always a perk that medical school is paid for, and you don't go into a lot of debt-free education, and I would say that you know, I had done a lot of traveling when I was younger. I have a bit of a gypsy spirit. Um, so the idea of having some maybe extended paid work opportunities in different um, states and countries really sounded like very appealing to me. So that's kind of why I went into OB and then OB in the military um, and specifically the Air Force. Okay. So Air Force family. Yeah. That's right. What differences between military and civilian training or medicine have you seen? Or are there any lessons you have learned from one setting that you use in the other or vice versa? Oh, yeah, definitely. So obviously, I was at the combined um, military civilian residency training at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base. Um, So we also work at one of the downtown hospitals. So I can definitely say that I saw huge differences between my time in, you know, military uh, medicine and, and working as a resident in the civilian hospital. So let me, let me kind of start with maybe some of the residency aspects. Um, and then we can kind of go into a little bit more of maybe what I've been learning as a attending physician. Um, obviously I am, I'm not into the, um, realm of civilian attending land yet, but did interact with a lot of civilian attendings um, during my time as a resident at Wright Path. So, um, so let's just kind of talk about the military uh, OBGYN residencies. You're gonna get a good solid foundation um, and education um, for OBGYN at any of the uh, military OBGYN residencies, at least in my experience in interacting with the Air Force residencies. For the military only ones, you may not, you may or may not have as much as the robust numbers that your civilian counterparts get, even in the combined programs, you may not have as much as some of the civilian counterparts get, but you def- it gives you that flexibility to really like learn and study instead of just being kind of completely overwhelmed with all your clinical tasks all the time. I would definitely say that the benefit of the combined civilian and military residency program was that it did give you a lot of more volume than required. Um, And it also um, provided in some ways more pathology. Um, So I'll get a little bit more into that with maybe some of the differences between civilian and military medicine, but really you do a lot more preventative health in the military 
you catch pathology before it gets really bad. Whereas you'll see a lot more pathology um, on the civilian side of things. But OBGYN, like I had said, is kind of a lot of, you know, it's probably one of the more artsy specialties. It's a lot of gut feelings and you really develop those gut feelings when you see a lot of normal and a lot, and then you see, you know, pathology as well. So, so I'd say that that was probably one of the benefits I really liked about my program. I would say that probably one of the advantages for being in the military uh, only training programs is that the transition into military as an attending might be a little bit less of a shock because you really learn how to operate within your chain of command more frequently. You learn how to navigate being um, the clinical leader of your team, even though you're lower ranked than a lot of your staff. And you learn how to navigate the military EMR, um, which is uh, the electronic medical record. And um, it's, it's in flux a little bit right now, but there's definitely some different challenges that come with the electronic medical record kind of no matter where you are. So I think any transitions between either, even between civilian practices would be hard when you're learning a new EMR, but um, it's definitely hard when you get really comfortable with a certain type of EMR and then you have to kind of learn how to wait and figure out how to do a, a, the electronic medical record system in the military. Some differences about maybe military and civilian, say medicine, you definitely have, you know, you kind of have this more liability and malpractice kind of coverage within the military. Um, I mean, you can still be named in a lawsuit, but um, you're kind of underneath the Air Force in some ways, it makes you feel a little bit more protected and free to just really practice maybe good targeted medicine instead of always practicing like really defensive medicine. In the military, all your patients generally have insurance coverage coverage, and, um, and most physician ordered images or tests are going to be covered in kind of a no questions asked, filling out like the pre-authorizations and speaking with insurance companies like you would on civilian side is um, maybe not a huge aspect of your job in the military. You really only have to fill out pre-authorizations when, you know, your patients have like maybe failed the first two or the, the first line and then the second line kind of medications and you're really needing something specialized, but otherwise you're really not going to spend a lot of your time kind of waiting through that. And then also, as I kind of alluded to earlier, your patients have typically had insurance and they come for their annual exams and there's just a lot more preventative medicine done and tracked in the military. So you're usually not as far behind on screening with, and you catch pathology earlier with a lot of the um, military and their dependents. The other thing is obviously you get to travel the world with military um, and you get to learn a lot about global healthcare and different standards of care and medicine. And um, you get to see some of the differences and, and interact with physicians like around the world. And I think that that is maybe an opportunity that you definitely wouldn't have necessarily on the civilian side. The military is a little bit uh, in transition right now. So all the services are kind of being transitioned to fall underneath the defense health agency umbrella. Um, and it's to kind of help standardize medicine across the services and to make medicine really relevant to the 
to the object of the military, um, the deployment of the warfighter, the airmen. Um, and so it's a lot, it's a little bit in flux right now. So, you know, we're, we're, the emphasis is really starting to be placed on our skills as um, pelvic surgeons. Um, so medicine in general is heading toward being minimally invasive, but of course, you know, on the, on the quote unquote battlefield, the military really needs surgeons who can kind of help with swift abdominal entry. Obviously we get really good at that as OBGYN surgeons um, for our C-sections and then hemorrhage control, which obviously in OBGYN, you're definitely learning that a lot. So OBGYN is moving towards more becoming a little bit uh, maybe more operational towards maybe more deployments um, because we definitely are really helpful as first assistants to like some of the general surgeons. So, um, but as a caveat, even if you end up going into a subspecialty in um, OBGYN in the military, you will always take obstetric calls. So that's also a huge difference between the military and the civilian side is, you know, if you become a subspecialist in the civilian side, you will probably never see some of the basics that you learned in your residency ever again. But your residency training will prepare you to be on top of things as you continue doing obstetrical call and a lot of the basic GYN surgeries in the military. Okay. Thank you. That's so much great information. Yeah. Sorry. It's a bit, I know it's a little bit overwhelming. <laughs> That's okay. That's why we're putting it in podcast form. You can take bites as you are ready for them. Yeah. Yeah, there is a lot of things that I think maybe I would have known a little bit more as a medical student and, and then kind of going into being an officer and balancing that. But definitely, I would say for the medical students out there that the military really has made it, or at least the Air Force, I guess I can't really speak to um, all the other services, but I, I have picked up that it seems like the other services have a similar structure, it's, it's pretty imperative that you kind of have a pretty strong vision for where you're, where you're wanting to head specifically, if you're kind of wanting to get into the military leadership, or you anticipate that you're going to be in the military long-term, um, the military has actually these, or I guess the air force specifically has med Corps career pyramids. And I wish I would have known about that really early in my career, but they're, they're very specific and they let you know, they have timelines and kind of let you know what you need to be doing at each stage. It really, you know, as a medical student and getting into residency, the, the bottom of the pyramid is quite flexible and that will be really in flux a lot while you're kind of going through residency. It's, it's, the, the bottom is obviously it's the foundation. They, every, every track requires you to just get a really excellent medical education and finish residency and pass your boards. So a lot of the air force stuff, kind of, you're pretty untouched by it at that level. I think, especially when you're trying to work on, uh, choosing your, where your first base is going to be. And, um, and then also kind of helping you choose your residency program, um, it's a little bit helpful if you can kind of have an idea of maybe where, where you want to go in the military. Um, so there's a command track, which is really kind of a, 
a leadership track. Um, so if you're kind of thinking that eventually you'd want to be a, a hospital commander or, um, or something to that effect, um, if you're kind of thinking you might want to be like one of the consultants to the Surgeon General for your specialty, there's, that's kind of a little bit more the command track. Um, there's also an academic track. So that's, that's kind of your research and education track. So they, so that's kind of, if you're thinking more like you want to eventually maybe do like a, a program director, or you want to, um, maybe be a department chair. Um, if you're thinking, you know, you really want to become just like faculty or something like that. There's also a, it's a clinical career track. So this is probably the only track where you really get to kind of still when, especially once you get to the upper levels of the military, where you're seeing more, like you're seeing patients a lot. Um, they call you kind of a, a master clinician when you get to the top. It really is kind of more the fellowship track and just becoming a subject matter expert in your field. Um, and then re they re the Air Force recently just kind of came out with a more operations oriented track. So um, as I said, we're kind of heading a little bit more, it seems towards uh, maybe deployment and things like that. So um, so you can always cross train from OBGYN or really from any specialty into um, in the Air Force into flight medicine or like a more operations track where you're you're going to be taking care of the pilots and their families a little bit more in depth. Anyways, I, my encouragement really is just for everyone to kind of find a, a mentor. So um, not only just a physician mentor, though, that is super helpful, but um but also finding um, your enlisted mentor whenever you're kind of starting out in your military career, um, just to kind of help you work on kind of your military speak and kind of talk you through maybe some of your opportunities for leadership and, and what courses are available um, and when you can do those. And then, um, and then just make sure that you talk with your, you know, the residency programs that you're looking into about kind of the opportunities that they may give to you to be able to help you prepare to go down the track that you're kind of desiring. Like I said, really early in your career and in medical school, the foundation is going to be the same, but having a little bit of an idea of where you're kind of heading with that is I think really helpful to kind of set, you know, a little bit more like some maybe five-year and 10-year goals. It was something I wish I would have known maybe going when I first started out in my um, military path. Yeah, this is um, my first time hearing about that. So I'll definitely be looking into it just to, yeah. And also just thinking about what we want to do. Yeah, five to 10 years down the road, it will be helpful to have those in, in our mind. Yeah. And I think um, because everything is really being brought underneath the DHA umbrella, I think that those, those paths are pretty similar for the other services as well. Obviously they, they may call it a different path, but I, I know I have heard of, obviously, since I went to um, the uniformed services university, I have both colleagues in the, the Navy and the army and, um, I don't know if there is, if their tracks are as explicit, but, but you could always ask your air force, um, colleagues to, to kind of, uh, send you the medical pyramids. I'm wondering how 
you guys could access it that we have the it's it's on the air force kx and i know that everybody gets access to that as a um resident so maybe that's just something to tuck away in your back pocket mm-hmm. um but it it lets you uh, get access to those tracks and just to be able to say like, okay, here's where I am in the pyramid. This, these are kind of the things to anticipate coming up. Yeah, that's great. Did you want to talk about how we could develop officership while in medical school and then continue to be strong officers in the military as we advance? I would say that, like I said, even with the pyramids, the basic thing is to get a great medical education, maintain that mindset of being a lifelong learner and do an excellent job at that, at the stage that you're at with, you know, say your step exams and board exams. And the reason is, is because it makes you more well-rounded to be able to speak as a subject matter expert, um, as a physician. And, and that is, you know, going to be your, the largest part of your role uh, in the military. So you're going to be put in some leadership positions pretty much right away as a physician, as soon as you become more active duty outside of residency. So, so you're going to need to know how to articulate things from your perspective as a physician. Um, you're definitely going to want to speak up because you, you're the boots on the ground and you know how things work clinically. And if you're getting to a base and you see that there's a process that could make, be made better or more efficient, you just got to say something. Cause a lot of the times um, your leaders may, may or may not be physicians. We definitely need physicians in these leadership positions, but because we've been, you know, really trained to think through things a different way and, and kind of, you know, as you're, as you're going through your medical education, you'll be taught that there's a very structured way to think of things and and um, a lot of times you're going to want to do that just so that you don't miss things, you know. And so, so you you get really good at um, processing things that way. And you just got to know that if you you know if you don't speak up, there may might be hospital guidelines put in place, or you're going to be mandated to do things a certain way, and it might be a lot more challenging. Um, and then it's also a lot more difficult to try to get you know some of those things kind of amended. So you want to try to get your you know if you can try to get a seat at the, those leadership tables, try to be able to speak up and, and give your input as a physician, especially coming right out of residency. Sometimes I feel like people can maybe be a little bit timid about that. You have a lot to say and you, and you were made, you were really built for that coming out of residency. So I think that there's definitely some struggles with being an officer and a physician. So obviously the I'm definitely no pro at it, but, um, in the military, I guess you're, you're always going to have the military. So I know that's kind of a vague statement, but I'm just meaning to say that you're, you know, you're, you're going to always have to pass your PT test. So you, you know, you get to, you get to prioritize in some ways, um, your health and fitness and well being. but then there's going to be some other things like, um, you know, say you're in drug screens or, um, the computer-based training that isn't necessarily like clinically relevant. Um, you're going to have, you know, all calls. It's just a lot of things that can be a little bit disruptive when you're, when you're trying to be really busy being, um, you know, a physician, ultimately the military expects you, you know, first to be an officer and then, um, the physician role sometimes comes second. It's just trying to learn how to set the boundaries between the two and just know being flexible, knowing that that line's often, 
kind of blurred and constantly in flux. But that's where your mentors can really come in and help you too. Um, your, your enlisted folks can really be a huge asset to you in helping you figure out how to be an officer. They can help you um, practice before you're um, receiving awards or giving awards or decorations. They can help you with writing these annual reviews because you won't have you won't have been trained in how to be an officer as much. That is that doesn't seem to be a lot of the focus. So learning from your enlisted officers and if you can taking the military offers courses for when you're um, kind of young and fresh in your medical career, things like the blast course and things like that, the, the process improvement academies and things like that, so that you can kind of grow that aspect of yourself. So again, these are just kind of maybe more tips to keep in your back pocket because it doesn't come into play too much, but it hits you right in the face, like as soon as you graduate residency. So trying to you know, develop a really strong relationship with your enlisted people can really be super helpful. What advice do you have for students choosing a specialty? So I would say first, when you're in your initial rotations, decide if you love medicine or surgery. It simplifies everything a lot and it really helps you plan kind of your, you know, fourth year sub-eyes and those elective rotations a little bit more effectively. So I would recommend planning maybe a medical and surgical rotation pretty early in your rotation blocks so that you can get that exposure and get an idea of what you love, or if you have the opportunity to really shadow a lot of physicians during your first and second year, but they're just the first and second year are pretty busy and just very academic heavy. So trying to get in there and kind of getting an idea of what you, what you enjoy is really important. And then also just listen to the feedback that you receive. So if people say that you have a gift, just acknowledge that and keep an open mind. I think that many people kind of end up in a specialty that they did not say expect to love. I know a lot of people, especially that had OBGYN kind of, you know, at the bottom of their list. (laughs) Um, And then it ended up being, you know, what they chose to go into. And so just acknowledge who you are and where you are as part of your story, but give yourself kind of some of that space to write the rest of your story. And even if kind of some of the different chapters look a little bit different than what you expected, medicine is a little bit of kind of a choose your own adventure, if you will, but it can, it, you'll end up in places that you really didn't expect. Just kind of keep an open mind when you're choosing your specialty. Great advice. Do you have advice for students trying to get into residency or going through the process of choosing a residency? Yeah. So obviously I'm kind of maybe speaking a little bit more towards OBGYN, but um, some of this is going to be pretty relevant to all the specialties. So you can, you know, I would recommend that you really develop your ability to create a strong differential diagnosis um, and try to know the initial workup steps and how to narrow that differential. Because when you're doing your interview rotations, a lot of programs won't necessarily expect you to know all the subtleties, uh, like the subtleties that are involved in all the treatment, but they do want to make sure that you have a pretty solid foundation that they can build on. 
they want to know that you have a solid foundation for your history and physical exam, and then kind of how that leads you to your suggested differential and that you kind of understand how you can, what tests you could order to kind of start working through that differential. For OBGYN, obviously, and a lot of the surgical specialties, aside from that, you're really going to want to, you know, know your anatomy. They're going to ask you a lot of questions about your anatomy when you're on those rotations. And they're going to want to make sure that you also might have some of somewhat of a, a surgical foundation to build on. So, so I'll, you know, if, if you can try to have people teach you how to tie knots or something before you actually go on your surgical rotation, sometimes you'll see the, the laparoscopic trainers. And if you can get your hands on a couple of those beforehand, if you're thinking about kind of going into one of the surgical specialties, just to kind of get a little bit of um, some of that, the, the manual um, that learning and the textile feel for some of those for OBGYN, I would really recommend if you're thinking of maybe doing your sub I in OB that you get the red book. It's, it's called obstetrics, gynecology, and infertility handbook for clinicians. Um, if you're a visual learner, I loved, um, OBGYN illustrated too. And then I think a lot of students had like blueprints for OB. I think for surgery, surgical recall was a really big asset. And then I think the step-ups for the different aspects of medicine, your medical rotations are super helpful. The other thing is that for most of the specialties, you can join their college or their accreditation system for free. And so like as a medical student, so it will, if you're kind of knowing that you're like heading towards peds, you, you can normally get some aspects of maybe the Academy of Pediatrics for free. And it it gives you some great resources, but then it also kind of gives you a heads up about some conferences that you could attend or gives you the ability to maybe present some research at them. And it gives you the ability to really develop some of those mentor relationships and kind of get your foot in the door before you're actually even doing your rotations there. And I think, you know, when you're at a program, if it's somewhere that you know that you kind of are really wanting to be, try to advocate for yourself and maybe get in on a couple of research projects with those residents, because then they'll really advocate for you to, you know, come to their program because you're already part of the program in some ways. In OB, there's uh, now five residency programs. So for the Air Force, there's Portsmouth Naval Medical Center. Um, that's in Virginia. I think that it's Bethesda. They've changed the names multiple times over the years, but I think right now it's like the National Capital Consortium, Walter Reed. And then the obviously Wright Pat uh, and then Brooke Army Medical Center in San Antonio. And then they just newly opened a program at Nellis Air Force Base in Las Vegas. Just when you're interviewing programs, and this goes for both civilian and military residencies, when they're interviewing you, you're also interviewing them. So make sure that you get the questions answered that you need, whether it be from staff or residents, so that you can confidently make the decision about whether or not the program is a right fit for you. Be upfront about who you are. In some ways, you know, if, if you don't end up getting selected for who you are, then in I think in the end, it benefits both you and the program because you're going to be happier at a program that really wants you and finds you to be an asset and that you really, you know, fit well in. So if you're, if you're thinking that you want to go down a fellowship track, eventually I would ask the program kind of ahead of time, like who's gone to fellowships and which fellowships and get an idea um, of the acceptance rate. And then that also lets you know, kind of how supportive the program might be to allow you to head in that direction. If you're interested interested in research, get an idea of the structure um, of the research 
in the residency program and kind of pay attention to the projects that the program has kind of churned out in the last four years. Other things to kind of consider is start talking with the interns and the chief residents and, and specifically for OBGYN or surgical residencies, you know, kind of ask them how they feel about their operative skills and do they feel confident as a surgeon and, and kind of get an idea of maybe the structure of their academic program. So do they have protected academic time? If you're a self-learner or, you know, very self-motivated, then you know, it's helpful to know if the program's going to kind of give you some of that set aside time for you, or if it's a very structured kind of outside structure learning where it's kind of, there's a curriculum and uh, some, some residency programs have like weekly quizzes or things like that. So, you know, some programs give you a little bit more space to kind of read about problems as you're encountering it. And there's some that are just, you know, highly structured, making sure that you don't, you know, miss any aspects, but ultimately all the programs that I encountered will ensure that you have a really solid foundation and knowledge to be able to be an effective OBGYN and pass your boards. And then other things just to kind of think about is just, you know, obviously my husband and I, we started our family in residency. So is that kind of when you're thinking of, you know, starting your family? And so just kind of pay attention to the other residents have kids and What was the residency program's maternity leave policy? Um, Do they have time that you have to make up at the end of residency if you do take maternity leave? And then make sure that you kind of find out about the program's numbers and, you know, do all the residents attain the minimums that are required? And especially like things like open surgeries, abdominal hysterectomies, a lot of programs are kind of struggling with that because medicine is really heading towards minimally invasive because it's, it's more kind of patient centered, but, and then just look at where the current residents and the recent graduate graduates um, have kind of gone and, um, and what they're doing now so that you can kind of look at, at those people and just kind of decide if you are kind of wanting to be like them in you know, in the next few years. And then just, it also gives you an idea of kind of the students, the program typically matches as well. So, you know, if they, especially for the military programs, if they've matched a prior military, you know, experienced military or a uh, uniform services student for like the last six years, then it kind of gives you an idea of, you know, where your chances are of getting in. And then just know there's quite, there's some differences between the military and civilian match. Um, that's for surgical and the med- medical spe- specialties. But um, so, so prior military on the military match gives them extra points. And then I would ask the programs, you know, if, if you can, while you're early in your career, if, if they want, what kind of step exam score they want, are they okay with, you know, do they accept the DO exam scores or do they, you know, cause some programs, it just translates better for them if you have the the normal, the USMLE step exams. And then all the, all the program directors uh, in the military match know how each student ranked all the programs. Um, So that's a little bit different from the civilian match. Um, So sometimes it's not advantageous in the military match to tell multiple programs that you ranked them as your number one program, because there's, you know, it's all kind of out in the open when they're working through the match. And then, uh, you know, interview early, for the military match. Cause a lot of times the programs decide their candidate list by like mid October. And you know, the, the match comes out in December typically. And then also I always kind of tell, you know, especially civilian training students that, um, it, even if you're kind of 
hoping and intending on, on getting a civilian sponsored spot or civilian deferred, I, it would behoove you to um, at least phone interview with the military programs and get an idea of which military program you would kind of say maybe tolerate if you don't get one of the civilian sponsored or civilian deferred spots um, and rank the military programs from your top tier list because you could end up just getting assigned to one depending on how many military students um, are in the OBGYN match. It's, it's usually a pretty, right now it's been a pretty competitive specialty. So usually the students that are wanting those civilian deferreds are, are going to get it because they'll have enough people applying for the active duty spots. But, but just in case, you know, you want to get matched with a program that you feel like you could still, you know, thrive there as well. Excellent. Thank you for all that information. Yeah, no problem. (laughs) (laughs) I feel like I'm going to have to listen to this a few times and be like, oh yeah, I got to keep that on my mind. Yeah, some of it is just more stuff to think. Some of it's more things to think about immediately, but then there's some things that are really just kind of just stick it in your back pocket and kind of have it back there somewhere so that you can (laughs) pull it out later um, when it's actually applicable. Mm -hmm. And it is nice, like getting this information now, um, especially I I think I can speak for probably most first years, just that we haven't had a lot of connection and just running into people and, you know, we haven't gone to any conferences yet. So it's nice to hear these things that we would maybe hear more of if it wasn't COVID and everything. Um, Right. Right. I really appreciate all of your insight. Is there anything else you wanted to say before I let you go? Um, Just... Really, if, um, if anybody wants to talk about maybe some of the transitions that are coming up in the military or how to balance, you know, the mill to mill lifestyle or how to have kids and be a doctor, um, you know, there's, there's a lot. This is more um, kind of school and residency related, but I'm also, I'm really happy to, you know, mentor or um, chat with people that are, you know, trying to balance have that work-life balance and and figure out how to how to do life well outside the military too so I'm happy to um, take on anybody for mentorship if if they're uh, interested that's very kind of you well great thank you so much for all of your advice and information and yeah for now and in the future I really appreciate your time that wraps up our episode with Dr. Napier today Thank you so much for your time and sharing your experiences with us future military physicians. For those of you listening, if you have any recommendations for the podcast or anything you'd like to hear in particular, feel free to email samopseducationchair at gmail.com. Thanks for tuning in.